Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, and welcome to you, all of you, our amazing listeners. This is Mayo Clinic's Always On EM podcast, the Grand Rounds edition, and my name is Vank Bellamkanda. I am one of the two hosts of the show. Please, please, please take a moment to like, comment, and follow our show on your preferred podcasting platform, and tell the person sitting next to you to listen to the show too. Hopefully you have been having a great month of July so far. I know I have. I've had the privilege of working with several of our new resident physicians, saying emotional goodbyes with the class who just graduated, and being at the bedside with lots of different patients and families who needed our help. It makes me think back to July 2006, I joined the Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine Residency, and that would turn out to be the most amazing journey of my professional career. And I did that alongside Dr. Carmen Sunga. She is truly a wonderful person who I would best describe as genuine and authentic. She cares for people and is generous with her experiences and insights, which are truly invaluable when she shares them. She and I were co-chief residents together during the H1N1 pandemic and have grown on the Mayo Clinic EM staff together. Recently, she gave a talk entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? How to Speak Like an Emergency Physician. And this really challenged me as a listener to reflect on how I could have handled some things differently to really be allied with the patients and truly also my family at different times in my life. To hear my friend perform at such a high level was an incredible gift, and I am thrilled to share it with you today. As has happened before, the formal introduction of Dr. Carmen Sangha will be given by Dr. Annie Sadasti, who we also hold in the highest esteem. Please take it away, Dr. Sadasti. All right. Welcome, everyone, to today's Grand Rounds. I have the absolute privilege and pleasure to introduce Dr. Carmen Sangha, today's Grand Rounds speaker, and she's speaking on a topic um, about which I consider her to be an expert. So this is exciting for me. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background and I know a lot of it. And so it's always fun to think about what do you have to say about a treasured colleague and friend, but here you go. So she completed her bachelor's at the University of Illinois, went on to get her medical degree from the University of Illinois at Peoria and uh, graduated from the Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine Residency in 2010 as one of our chief residents. Most of you know her as a treasured faculty member, a dedicated educator, and I'll just give you a sense of what she's done over the course of her career. She's been the long time, and I say that and I really mean it, like dedicated simulation curriculum director. So resident classes after classes after classes have been the beneficiaries of her work with our very intentional simulation curriculum. She um, was in charge of the off-service resident experience for several years and has done trauma team training. And so if you think about our mature trauma system, um, we owe a debt of gratitude to her. At the faculty level, she created a speaker's development program, and many of our faculty were part of that program and in part uh, owe a lot of gratitude to her for helping them take their own teaching to the next level. And then she was an assistant program director within the residency. She's a really generous mentor and a super qualified leader. I think about 
our same program and I'm always grateful when I'm taking care. I'm always sad, of course, when I take care of a same patient, but I'm very grateful for the intentional structure and um, careful protocols that we have. Um, she co-founded the Telesane program, which in my mind is really innovative. It's been a long time. And I think the inaugural DEI liaison within the department and currently sits as a member of the executive committee. <clears throat> now, what you may not know is that I envy her in so many ways because she has talents that I don't. Um, there are some fun things that we share, interests in common. She is an incredible collector of watches. Um, I only wish I had a tenth of the watches that she had. And um, you should take a look at her wrist every now and then. It's kind of fun. There's always history associated with it. And I encourage you to explore that. She also loves um, fine pens and knows a lot about them and has taught me a lot along the way. But what you might not know is that kind of like Dr. Hami loves boy bands, Dr. Sunga loves girl bands. So it started years ago with the Spice Girls and Spicy Spice and Posh Spice and all of the various Spice Girls. But now it's AJ and Allie. Little known fact. So all kidding aside, I mean, those, that's true. All of that's true. I'm not lying about any of that. But all kidding aside, um, She's talking today about communication in emergency medicine, and it's it's an awesome topic because truth be told, I think Dr. Sunga is probably the finest communicator I know. Um, if you remember that listening is part of communication um, and, and a really important part, I have learned a lot from her just in, with her intentional listening skills, and I can't wait to hear what she has to say. So with that, I'm going to turn the microphone over to her. Well, thank you, Annie, so much for the introduction. It means so much coming from you. I'm a little hesitant to ask you because I have so much respect for you um, and didn't know what you're going to say, but uh, a lot everything you said, I think, um, uh, rings true. So thank you very much. And thank you all for coming to my Grand Rounds. As Annie said, this is on the topic of communication. I hope you leave here with plenty to think about and many tips and tricks for your next shift. And I do apologize that I'm not there in person with you, but circumstances dictated that I, I be at home today. So uh, my slides should be advancing. So if not, let me know. But before we start um, my presentation, I'll give you some thoughts on communication to frame what we'll be talking about for the, the rest of this uh, hour. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. So what that says to me is we think we are better communicators than we actually are. How well we communicate is not determined by how well we say things, but how well we are understood. So communication is both about the sender and the receiver. And great communication begins with connection. It is imperative that both sides feel important to the conversation and to each other. I'm dedicating this lecture today to the best communicators I know my parents, uh, as you could see, they were both trained in medicine. My mom devoted her life to her family and my dad is still practicing to this day. They're my heroes, my inspiration, the reason why I'm here today. And so mom and dad, this is for you. I have no disclosures as far as my objectives. We'll discuss why being a skilled communicator is essential for an emergency physician. We'll define effective communication 
And in the last part of the talk, I'll give you uh, communication strategies to make yourself and others feel heard. What this talk is not directly about are written forms of communication, such as social media or email, uh, or even documenting in the medical record. And it's not what you might think it would be about, which is medical handoffs, how to consult with specialty services, or even how to lead a team in a resuscitation. But I promise you what you will learn today will still be helpful in all of those areas. So the first part, why is being a skilled communicator key for an emergency physician? There's three sections to this. Time and environment is not on our side. We have expectations to be good communicators in the professional and academic and workplace spaces. And maybe, just maybe, you can co uh, combat burnout within your sphere of control by using communication. So the ED, it's an amorphous place. We never know what we're gonna get. But the things we do know about the ED and the reasons why we have to be great at communicating are the following. Discontinuity of care. Patients show up and we've never met them before and they've never met us. So we need to be able to get across the, uh, the messages that we want to send to them right from the get-go. We have discontinuity of teams with shift work, rotating medical students and residents. It's probably statistically impossible that you have the same team twice on a shift. The communicators themselves are stressed. The patients are scared, anxious, in pain. And the teams, we are stressed because of our anti-circadian lifestyles are uh, very little bathroom breaks that we get. Uh, it's just not a great environment unless you go in with the intention to communicate well. Don't forget about COVID and PPE and masks. Things are much better now, but we are still in the ED more so than other spaces in the medical world wearing masks, both the patients and uh, the staff. And so we lose a lot of that uh, facial communication. And so we need to be better at other types of communication. And finally, of course, time. It's not on our side. We don't have the luxury of knowing we have 20 minutes with this patient uh, to get in and get out. We could be interrupted at any time with a very sick patient. And we know that there is a waiting room of 20, 30, sometimes even 40 people who will just have to wait longer if we take too long. What about professional standards? What, what does the American Board of Emergency Medicine think that we what is important for us as certified emergency medicine physicians. They have created uh, two documents, which you can look at online. One is the knowledge, skills, and attitudes of an emergency physician, uh, which is basically the actions and behaviors that we should be, uh, be skilled at. And then the model of the clinical practice of emergency medicine, which ABEM likes to define as the nouns, basically what, what sets us aside as emergency docs versus others. And it's basically what the uh, written board exam is based on. It covers many, many things that you would expect. We have to be good proceduralists, resuscitationists. We have to choose the right medications. But at the very top, number one there, because it's alphabetical, but of course, number one is communication and interpersonal skills. Uh, this trickles down to the residency level. The ACGME is the body that ensures that we have excellent emergency programs that will be graduating excellent emergency residents. And they do so by using milestones uh, and that residents have to meet in order to progress through uh, each year of residency. And they've divided these milestones into six big areas, but one very important area, again, is interpersonal and communication skills. Mayo Clinic, these are the values that Mayo Clinic asks each of its employees to reflect upon when you're deciding how to behave at work. 
And even though communication isn't specifically listed here, the ones that I've highlighted in blue, respect, teamwork, compassion, excellence, healing, none of those could be possible if you're not a good communicator. Well, let's, let's uh, think about this. Uh, in order to be a good communicator, or, or if you are a good communicator, maybe you'll stem some of the patient complaints that we get. So this was a retrospective analysis of 2,400 ED patients with 3,400 separate complaints. 31.6% of those complaints were communication issues and 12.9% related to the way patients were treated, essentially, the attitudes of the staff uh, the, uh, who were rude and discourteous. And then if you're a good communicator, you can actually increase patient satisfaction on the flip side. This was a systematic review that uh, looked at seven controlled intervention studies that actually showed pre and post that there was increased patient satisfaction if you communicated more with the patients, meaning you gave them increased information at arrival in terms of what to expect uh, in their ED stay, why there are waiting times and those types of things. And then increased patient satisfaction as well if uh, employees were uh, enrolled in training courses to improve the attitudes and communication skills. You guys may remember, uh, I sent out a survey a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, to most of the people in the emergency department, and I asked what makes an excellent emergency physician. I wanted to know whether or not colleagues really thought communication was that important. And you'll notice the way that I phrased this, what makes an excellent emergency physician? I didn't ask what makes an excellent communicator. Um, the, and this is the breakdown of all the respondents. Uh, the nurses are our biggest employee category. And so, of course, uh, naturally, they, they did make up most of these uh, answers. Uh, but everyone who did submit your answers, I thank you so much. You're, you helped me a lot with this presentation. So here are the answers. This is a word cloud. And if you're not familiar with the word cloud, the more times a word appears, the larger the word is. And so my original question was, please give me five adjectives for what makes an excellent emergency physician. And you can see here that communication and approachability are the top two things that nurses want from us. Um, and I would argue that approachability and being calm, respectful, humble, all these other things that are listed on here, a lot of them anyway, these are part of good communication skills. And so, so far my theory is correct. The NPPA group, approachability is number one, which makes sense. They, they come to us as in, they're, they're independent practitioners, but they also come to us for advice or supervision. So uh, being approachable is important. Uh, social work, it, it says only one person responded, but to be fair there, what I thought was their distribution list was actually just an inbox. And so thank you to the one social worker who responded. And because you did, I'm going to give your answer here. It's no surprise. They want us to be empathetic, a listener, uh, a communicator, approachable. Uh, pharmacists want us to be decisive. Again, no surprise because we're often asking them, what do I do? But uh, in terms of communication skills, they want us to be inclusive, open, collaborative. Residents, um, th this is where I think the, the data starts to get a bit interesting. Residents do think you need to be empathetic uh, and a good communicator, but they are really more focused on efficiency, which is not surprising because that's really what they're trying to work on the hardest, I think, during uh, their senior years is, is how to be faster at everything and be better. Um, and then when you get to the consultants, the word communication actually drops off quite a bit. Uh, it, it's not, uh, I'm not blaming or, or shaming anyone, but 
you know, it, it's just something that we don't think about as a consultant that is very important. And so that's part of why I'm here today to talk to you about this topic, because I want to bring it back front of mind. And then here are all the responses uh, collectively. Communication actually shows up twice, so it probably is the number one uh, in, in line with approachability. Okay, so this is the last part of the first section. Um, most of you, I talk about this all the time, so most of you probably know I only live two blocks from the ED. And so if you can imagine, this is me on my way to work, trying to psych myself up for my shift. I'm a healthcare hero, right? I'm hopefully well-rested. I'm feeling very positive and optimistic. My job is making a difference in the world. I am helping people. But if I'm not careful, if bad things happen at work, day in and day out, I might leave my shift feeling like this. Instead, I'm burdened with many things. I'm feeling crushing exhaustion. I'm not optimistic any longer. I'm cynical. And I, I feel that nothing that I do makes it any better. And what am I describing here? I'm describing burnout. And what burnout is, is actually a normal stress response. It's not pathological. It's a normal stress response when you have an excessive load. From a me uh, mechanical standpoint, burnout is excessive load ruining the ability of the machine to function. And then from a more personal standpoint, it's when you no longer feel dedicated or passionate about your job and basically you wanna quit. Uh, the authors of this book, The Burnout Challenge, talk about the fact that burnout is not a person problem, it's a workplace problem. And so it's not gonna be easily fixed by yoga or mindfulness or exercising or resiliency training. It's something that needs to change at work. And so the reason it occurs is because there's a mismatch between the worker and the workplace and the expectations that each has of each other. And so from the worker's perspective, there's too much work to do and not enough resources. Uh, there's a lack of control about what happens at work. You're not getting sufficiently rewarded. People aren't being fairly promoted and the conflicts of the company might be conflicting, or excuse me, the values of the company may be conflicting with your own personal values. Um, but the last one on this list, the breakdown of community. Uh, again, my talk is about communication. And this is the piece where I think you yourself, as well as working with your company, um, can make a difference. Because when you have a breakdown of community, you have conflict, you have distrust, you have disrespect. And working on your communication skills can fix all of these things at both the micro level and the macro level. So that's the first part of the talk, why we need to be um, excellent, um, excellent communicators. And so we're moving on now to defining what effective communication actually is. And again, three parts to this. What do our governing bodies say about it? What do patients say about it? And then what, what does the literature say? So again, going back to the American Board of Emergency Medicine, I've condensed the list of things that we need to do to be good communicators for both clarity and, um, and brevity, but these are the main points. They want us to establish rapport and demonstrate empathy, not only with patients, but with our teammates. And again, this, this is the section where I'm defining it in the very last part of the talk, I'll be telling you how. We'll, they want us to communicate information and confirm understanding. So that's again, both the sender and the receiver being important in the communication. Consider the expectations of those who provide or receive care in the ED 
and negotiate effectively to provide optimal patient care. They want us to do these things by active listening skills and asking the patient to participate in medical decision-making and using both verbal and nonverbal skills in order to do it. From the ACGME perspective, because this is a training, uh, uh, this is a, a body that governs training institutions, it's not a surprise that the communication milestones are very similar to what uh, ABEM wants us to do. So here I've only highlighted the, the main differences, which is they want us to train residents to use clear language with patients. No medical jargon, no terminology, just describe what it is that you're seeing and, and talking about in, in normal words. And then um, we also want to not just figure out what the patient's expectations are, but we want to elicit their values, goals, and preferences, which are different things, and incorporate that into our treatment decisions. They also want us to be able to get feedback on our performance and then to facilitate feedback to others who are more junior than we are. So that's what the governing bodies say. What does Mayo Clinic, uh, uh, how does Mayo Clinic define effective communication? Well, surprisingly, I found it on the, uh, the post-ED visit patient survey. These are sent, uh, I, I'm not sure how they pick patients, but these are sent to patients who've been discharged. And they're not asking patients how well we did in terms of diagnosing um, the condition or choosing the right medicines or being great at procedures. What they're asking about is communications. How polite was the doc doctor towards you? How was their attitude and behavior? Did they take the time to listen to you? Were they informative regarding your treatment today? How did they show you that they were worried about your comfort? And did they include you in the treatment decision? So some definitions of great communication there. Now, that, now we're gonna go into just a little bit of the literature before we move into the last part of the talk. This was an observational study at an urban academic medical center emergency department where they audio taped uh, 93 ED encounters between 24 emergency medicine residents and 93 non-acute adult patients. And um, they coded them according to certain definitions of what makes an excellent uh, communication encounter. And what they found was from the initial HNP, the history and physical time, there were 62 encounters these lasted only seven minutes and 31 seconds. So if you remember back at the beginning of the talk, we talked about how we don't have much time. A lot of people are only spending seven minutes and 31 seconds at the very beginning with these patients. So that's a lot of ground to cover in, in that time frame. But in this time frame, only 66% of residents actually introduced themselves to the patients. And only 8% said that they were in training. So I cannot imagine how this conversation is going when the patient has no idea who they're even talking to. How are they gonna know what they should talk about? Um, they found that 63% of the residents uh, remembered to start with an open-ended question, but only 20% of patients were allowed to complete without being interrupted. And how long do you think it was before they got interrupted? 12 seconds. I'm gonna pause for 12 seconds. Done. If you were a patient, do you think that you could have gotten everything you wanted to say to the doctor before you got interrupted? I'm guessing not. When they looked at 31 discharge encounters, which 
ranged from seven seconds to maybe three minutes, but the average being one minute, 16 seconds. Um, all the things you would expect that your doctor should be telling you when you're being discharged home, what my diagnosis is, what I should expect after I get home, how I should take care of myself, what medication should I use, when should I see my, my doctor and follow up, and when should I be worried to come back to the ED. Only 65% of the time or less were any of these things discussed. And 16% of questions or patients were asked whether they had questions. So 84%, I suppose, had to just figure it out on their own. And there were zero instances in which the provider confirmed patient understanding of the information. Uh, this is the last piece of literature I'll, I'll talk about, uh, but this was a communication curriculum that was developed at a university-affiliated county hospital, uh, 26 residents in a three-year program. And what the authors decided to do was um, take all of the residents and talk to them in an introductory session about why communication is important. They're doing what we are doing today, which they defined what effective communication is. And they actually provided them with a written checklist of items that they thought would meet criteria for good com communication. And then a few weeks later, those same residents underwent a single simulated standardized patient encounter with this time high acuity patients to see uh, how uh, the added stress of a ruptured ectopic pregnancy or a stroke or anaphylaxis, how that affects the way that we communicate with patients. And so how well did they do? They did pretty good at the basic stuff, which is what, what you want to start with, obviously, but 100% of the time they introduced themselves. They allowed the patient to uh, state the chief complaint in their own words. They made eye contact. They did not express personal opinions during the interview. And 90% of the time or more, they used the patient's name, and then they allowed the patient to finish his or her sentences. They were still pretty good with efficient uh, gathering of information in terms of the questions that they asked, but 85% of the time only did they remember not to use uh, jargon. And they did a lot worse when it came to communicating with their teammates. 61% of the time, they... Um, asked the nurse to reassess the patient's response to the interventions, but uh, the rest of the time, that was just information that they, they didn't get. And then 42% of the time, they, they remembered to talk to the nurse or the rest of the team about what they thought was going on, if the team had any input, or if the team had any concerns. Uh, in terms of coming back to the family for a second communication, they were pretty good at telling them what the plan was from that point forward. Uh, but 85% of the time, they started to slip in terms of telling the patient and family what their results were. 65% uh, did they ask the question, or the patient, how, how are you feeling after I gave you that morphine? And 38% of the time, did they ask if the patient or family had any questions? And so it's, it sounds to me like a one-sided conversation. Empathy did much much worse at empathy, which is, is okay because it's a hard skill to teach, but that's why we're here today. Um, they really were not able to understand what the patient's perspective was on the illness. Uh, they very rarely touched the patient in a reassuring manner. They uh, rarely reassured the patient and family. And so again, this is what we should be doing, but we could be doing better. So the last part of the talk, we're going to summarize communication strategies to make yourself and others feel heard. 
for this, I decided to look outside of the medical literature and more into psychology and surprisingly politics, but polite politics. Um, none of the none of the name throwing that we see th these days. And so I won't be referencing specific sources on my slides, but these are the six books that I read in order to prepare for this talk. So how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. This is good if you're raising a child, but it's also good if you just need basic uh, uh, communication skills. Ben Sandifer's favorite book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Speed of Trust. I got this recommendation from Jen Hess, a great communicator. A book called I Hear You. It's all about validation. Think Again and Treating People Well. So we got three sections again to this part. Talking to yourself, uh, which is basically getting yourself into the correct mindset to be a good communicator. Talking to colleagues and then talking to patients. Break yourself. What do I mean by this? Well, from an evolutionary perspective, we are all walking around with this kind of mindset. I am so very important. Everybody else is not as important as me. And that is that was there again to help us with survival of the fittest. But in the modern world, this is not very helpful when you're trying to be a good communicator. So remembering that arrogance alienates others and confidence inspires others. What you should do is flip the script to actually think that other people are either as equally important as you or maybe even more important as you in that particular conversation that you're having. In other words, you need to operate from a position of humility. The second thing you need to talk to yourself about when you're trying to be a good communicator is you've got to be graceful. When people are behaving in ways that you feel are not the way that they should be behaving, your first instinct may be to criticize them, but you shouldn't. You should seek to understand why a reasonable, rational, rational person would be acting this way meaning you need to find out what their good intentions are. For instance, I've heard this many times from many different kinds of healthcare staff in our ED. It's four o'clock in the morning. Why is this patient here with a sore throat? Well, first of all, that patient might be there with epiglottitis, but if, even if it is a simple viral pharyngitis, think about maybe that patient doesn't have any insurance, has no primary care physician, has no idea how the medical system is supposed to work. And so they're coming to the ED because that's all they know. Or they have three jobs and this is the only time that they were able to show up. Maybe that consulting service who was just very rude to you, perhaps they just got yelled by their consultant or they're running on three hours of sleep or they just got off a really terrible case where things went, went wrong. Be graceful. Sanctuary, this means to create a, uh, a safe space. People will only be able to communicate with you if, if they're feeling safe and that they can trust you. Um, I guess I am going to quote the, the Speed of Trust book here. Uh, Stephen Covey talks about different kinds of uh, trust environments and how that impacts how well a team works together. So if you have low trust, your interactions with each other are very tense because you are fearful of each other. You're not sure of what each other's intentions are. You're doubting um, each other's moves. And it's a, a draining type of environment because you're trying to use energy to create or maintain relationships that are faulty to begin with. A moderate and trust environment is actually a pretty good place to start because uh, people are polite. They, they, it's a healthy interaction with each other because you, do, you have built up some knowledge of what each other's intentions are. And so you, you feel safe and accepted and things are frictionless. 
But what you really want to create, if you want to be a good commuter, communicator is a high trust environment where people are happy to show up to work and they're happy to see who it is that they're working with. If you've never had the experience of walking into a hallway and people cheering that you're working with them, I guarantee that it's one of the best feelings in the world and you should really work towards that. Um, you can leverage each other's strengths because you've, you know each other's intentions and this actually creates energy and momentum for teams to work even better together. So moving on to the second piece here, um, how to talk to your colleagues. Before we go on, go on remembering that we've got our three pillars of uh, how to communicate well, which is to be humble, be graceful, and create that safe space. You have to create the trust. You can't assume that you the people will do it just because your name is Annie Sadosti. You have if you've never met that person before, you've got to make them know that that you are their sanctuary. And and the way to do this is to do the meet and greet, which is learn people's names and use them. I am not great at this. I continue to work at this every day. Um, but if the a person's name is one of the beautiful things, most beautiful things they could ever hear. It's because it is what sets them apart as individuals. It makes them feel important. Um, they know that you respect them because you've bothered to take the time to learn their name. So use names frequently. Again, just to create trust, state your intentions, state your expectations up front. Tell people what you need from them. If you are walking into a particularly grumpy looking shift, talk about having a positive mindset uh, at the beginning. Telling the nursing team, hey, if there is a really sick patient, I don't mind if you interrupt me no matter what I'm doing, but otherwise maybe let's communicate with secure chat. Then they kind of know a little bit about, you know, how flexible you are and, and, and how you like to communicate. But importantly, you need to also ask, what do you need from me to make this a good shift today? This again is, uh, it's good for the workflow, obviously, but it's conveying a sense of respect so that the person on the other end of all the communications feels important to you. And you've got to show humility and vulnerability. So asking for feedback, this is one of the things that we're trying to train our residents um, to do, but asking for feedback from your team. Hey, if I make a mistake today, please let me know. Or if I am failing to keep you updated with the patient's plan, just like you asked me to, please let me know. Um, this makes them know that you're approachable and uh, they will come to you uh, much more easily than if you've never set something up like this. And then of course you need to show gratitude each and every time someone comes up to you with that piece of feedback or does something great. Uh, we need to be great at being empathetic as you saw from the lists of uh, skills from ABEM as well as what our colleagues want from us. And so what empathy is really is just validation. So there's a direct connection between how people feel and how they behave. So if you see a, a, a colleague, a resident, for instance, who's feeling really terrible, in order to get them unstuck, you need to figure out how they're feeling. You need to name the feeling for them and provide a justification for why they're feeling that way. So for instance, I can see you're frustrated because you missed that central line. It's hard when things don't go our way. That's much better than saying something like, shake it off. People, people often think this might be a, um, a good response to when someone 
uh, is feeling bad, but really what that's telling that person is your feelings aren't valid. You, you need to not feel that way and feel this other way. So not, not something that you should do. Another thing that is well, well intended, but not great at, in terms of validating the other person is reassurance, surprisingly. Hey, don't worry about it. You are, you're usually really good at a central line. That might make sense for uh, them in the context of past experiences, but today they're feeling bad about the one that they just missed. And that's what they're continuing to think about unless you validate their feelings. And then offering advice. This is the other thing that people often try to do right away. Um, you know, but and it, there is a time and place for giving advice, but you've got to get the feelings out of the way first. You have to validate first, validate again, and then maybe after that, ask, is it okay to offer you some advice at this time? Once feelings are accepted, it's much easier to let go and move on. Remember, we're supposed to be good uh, at giving feedback. Well, flattery is positive feedback. And so you want to be generous with compliments for your team. Uh, it's Obviously, it boosts people's self-esteem and people love to hear it. But what it's actually doing is increasing their inner drive to excel. And so what I mean by this is you can't just say, great job today. You've got to describe specific behaviors that you saw that you want to keep seeing. You saw patients all the way till the end of your shift, even though I knew that you were tired. You didn't know the answer, but I saw you did the research on your own and you came to me with a plan after you looked it up. Your docu documentation is so thorough and timely. I already knew the patient by the time you came to talk to me about them. You can bet that on your next shift, if you're working with a resident uh, and they knew all these things were what you were looking for, they're gonna try to reproduce these behaviors and even more because they wanna keep hearing those compliments, that positive feedback. We also have to be able to give constructive feedback. And so there's many ways to go about it. I actually gave a whole 45 minute lecture about giving feedback. But what I learned from reading these, these recent books is that, hey, talk about your own mistakes first. This um, will normalize the situation for the person you're giving feedback to, and it makes them feel less ashamed. Uh, use descriptions of the problem uh, rather than assigning blame, and this helps reduce defensiveness on their part. And it actually even gives the other person a chance to figure out what to do. So here's an example. I noticed that the IV fluids on our hypotensive septic patient weren't started right away. I've learned from my own past cases how to do better. <laughs> Why do you think this happened here? How can we, or what can we do to prevent it in the future? And the resident could pause for a moment and you can tell them how to fix it, but they may actually come up with the answer and say, well, after we talked about it, I put the orders in the computer right away, but I didn't realize that the patient's nurse had to go to a resuscitation and those orders weren't seen for another 30 minutes. So maybe next time, if I have a time-sensitive intervention, I will go find the, per the person who's responsible for doing it. I will ask them to do that verbally and I will tell them why I need it to be done in that time frame. And there, you're done. You're a great teacher, you're a great communicator because they actually figured that out on their own. We are uh, finally now at the last piece of the uh, talk, which is how to speak with patients. Again, remembering a sense of humility, grace and sanctuary. The opening, when you say hello to the patient, that is your first impression. And so you've got to make it the best one. 
start strong. You've got to make the patients feel important, remember. So go in with a warm energy and smile. Uh, smiling may or may not be second nature to some of us, but what smiling does is tells the other person, I am happy to be here. Uh, I, uh, you're important to me. Uh, I'm present in this moment. So, so try to do it if you've not been doing it. You want to stay seated. Um, that is uh, a signal to the patient, again, that they're what's most important to you right now. And your posture needs to be relaxed. Uh, as Annie mentioned, I do sim with the residents a lot. And when the residents are feeling tense because patients are sick, what I've seen them do time and time again is cross their arms because they're feeling uncomfortable. But that posture is telling the patient that you're closed off. So relax your arms. Don't fidget. Don't look at your watch. Don't go to the computer automatically. Um, look at the patient. Make that eye contact. And then uh, there's something called mirroring, which if you see the patient doing a subtle uh, change in their body language, for instance, cocking their head to the side um, when they're thinking about something, if if all you do is do it yourself in a very subtle way, then that subconsciously tells them that you're connected, you're you're paying attention, um, you respect them. So, so try it sometime, uh, but don't make it too obvious. Again, the meet and greet is so important. Introducing yourself, we saw in the literature that 65% of the time, I think those residents did not say who they were to the patient. But again, it's very important that you then learn and use the names of the patient, as well as everybody else in the room. There's usually maybe three or four other people in the room with the patient max. It, so it just takes a few seconds to say, hey, what's your name? How do you know our patient? Um, and it, it makes everybody in the room feel important. Ask permission from the patient to help restore that sense of autonomy. They're lying in that uh, ED bed, not, not knowing what's happening to them, feeling uh, pain, anxious. Ask permission, can I talk with you now in front of your mom and dad here, or should we have them step out of the room? Uh, they will be much more open to talk to you about everything that they really should from a diagnostic perspective if they know that you've got their intentions uh, at heart or, or their best interests at heart. And then start with your open-ended question. How can I help you today or however you want to, to use it? And then this is the part that we all need work on, listening. Uh, remember that study that said 12 seconds is all that we usually give the patient. You really have to be as silent as you can for as long as you can. I have the good, the bad, the boring on here kind of as a joke, but we've all been in the room before when the patients, you've asked the patient one thing and then they've kind of started meandering down what they did the entirety of the day before the ED visit. But just give them time. It, it, um, eventually, they will get to the information that you need to know. Patients store, retrieve, and convey information very differently from doctors. And so allowing them to tell you what they think is important, and then you at the end directing them just a little bit with some follow-up questions is much easier than trying to hammer all the questions that you need to get out of the way at the very beginning. Head nods and verbal acknowledgments. This is to let the patient know, wow, I've been talking already for three minutes now, but is, is it okay for me to keep talking? Yes, you, you, you nod your head, you say, I see, please go on. Those very short verbal 
uh, phrases to let them know that you're listening and you're not going anywhere. You need to turn toward bids. And what these are, are requests for connection and validation. And so um, a very common example is if I am with an elderly man and I ask him who the elderly woman is in the uh, seat next to him, and he'll say something like, that's my beautiful bride of 65 years. And you cannot ignore that. You have got to share in that moment of pride and joy with that patient. It's a small moment of connection, but it goes a long way. Um, and so saying something like, wow, did you say 65 years? I can't believe it. That is so difficult to do. You guys must really love each other. They feel so much better. And then you can move on. It takes two seconds. Uh, don't forget to paraphrase what the patient said to you to make sure you understood what they were trying to say. It gives them an opportunity to correct any, any wrong information that you um, processed. And then when you leave the patient's room for the first time, remember, use the plain language not saying we are going to get, um, uh, you know, um, not saying I'm worried you have appendicitis. For most people, they probably know what that is, but saying something like, I think you might have an infection of your appendix, which is a part of your intestines, as simple as you can. But remembering to tell them, this is what I think is going on, and this is the plan that we have for you today. You have to elicit their expectations, remember. And so saying things like, have I addressed all your concerns today? What are you most worried about? What do you think might be going on? Or what were you hoping would happen when you came into the ED? Most of these things are already covered by what you've done if you've already done a good job at explaining. But a question like this might bring up that last thing that the patient was worried about that, that they were hesitant to say. And then, and then kind of wrapping up too with what questions do you have? It's worded very intentionally, not do you have any questions, because do you have any questions puts the burden on the patient to, to ask for more of your time. Uh, what questions do you have gives them permission to say whatever they want. And at the last part of the visit, or if you're just popping in to reassess them, again, remembering the plain language, explain the results, ask how did you respond to the medication we gave you, um, and remembering to tell them the diagnosis. It sounds silly for me to say this, but we saw the literature where this was not happening 100% of the time, and it needs to happen 100% of the time. Remember to discuss the next steps, whether that's discharge, admission, the operating room, letting the patient know what to expect at the next part of their uh, hospital encounter. Following up with what questions do you have? And then this part, which I'm not great at, but I'm going to try to be better at, it's what's called the teach back. Because again, the communication is about the sender as well as the receiver. How well did the receiver understand the information? I want to make sure that I explain things clearly to you. Can you tell me what we did for you today, what we think is going on, and what is coming up next? You may or may not be surprised how little of what you said was actually uh, processed by the patient. So I've got two more special patient um, encounters to talk about and then we'll be done. So what do you do if there is an upset patient? So this is a screenshot of my uh, critical one, excuse me, not critical, my center one hallway the other day toward the end of my shift. There were two patients in my hallway that were physically there in the ED longer than I was there. And most of that time was in the waiting room. 
And so I'm thinking to myself, this patient may be very upset about that. So what I will often try to do is a preemptive strike. I'll walk into the room and I'll say, I'm Dr. Sunga, I am here to take care of you. And I am so sorry you had to wait this long. I saw that you were here for eight hours and that's just not something that we, we strive for. Most of the time that's enough to diffuse any anger that the patients might have. They're actually pretty surprised when I say stuff like that. But if not, if they still want to get their feelings out, remember to listen. Everything that we talked about on the listen slide Stay silent for as long as you can to just let them get their story out. Um, and don't do what I've seen many people do, which is try to justify or make excuses for what the patient's complaining about. Well, you were only in the waiting room because you're not as sick as the other people. That, that's not the way to go. Um, you, you would say, you know, I would feel exactly the same way if I were you. And it will allow the patient to, to move on. If you can, make it right. So it, you could say something like, wow, you were in the waiting room so long, we were actually able to get all of your workup done. Things are, are normal. I bet you wanna go home. Let me go find our nursing staff right away so we can get you dismissed as soon as possible. Make them feel like you care. And then what do you do if there is an agitated patient? I have an asterisk here to remind myself to tell you that these techniques will not work with every patient, but try it in certain situations, it might surprise you. So um, many times I will come back from a resuscitation and I will see in the hallway, six security guards outside or inside a patient room. There will be a patient in restraints, spit mask, nursing team there, and then a resident hovering over their face <clears throat> saying, if you don't calm down, I'm gonna have to give you medication to make you calm down. Everything you've learned today, this is probably not the right technique. So what do you do instead? If I come in the room and see that there is a situation that we need to um, get a handle on, I'll describe how the behavior is affecting me. And that lets people's guards down and makes them feel more relaxed. It's easier for people to cooperate with you when they're not feeling personally attacked. So I'll say something like, I'm feeling really frustrated because everything in this room is going in the wrong direction. You want to validate how that person is feeling. Don't negate them. Uh, many times people will be yelled at if they're thrashing against nursing. I will hear people in the room say, calm down, calm down. We know that that is not the way to go. Instead, you could say something like, I could see you're feeling threatened by all the security personnel. You're so angry because you're not sure what is happening to you or why it's happening to you. And you really hate having the spit mask on your face. People might retort with some sort of um, snarky answer, but they're listening, they're understanding that you, you understand them. And you want at this point to pivot and make them, make them say yes. And any yes is a win, no matter how small. And what this does is you've got to figure out how to make what you want the same thing as what they want and, and for them to understand that. So something like, I'm here to take care of you. We both want what's best for you, yes? There's that first yes. We want to get these restraints off as soon as possible, yes? I think the best way to do that is for us to work together, yes? So that's three yeses. They're already in this momentum of yes. They've shifted away from the momentum of no, and they're hopefully going to start becoming more calm and working with you. And then you could continue to guide them. Tell them or get them to do what you want by 
letting them live up to expectations. For example, I know you want me to feel respected because I'm showing you respect. So let's talk to each other without yelling. This has worked for me, I promise. And then at the end, you can give choices that are acceptable to you, whatever choice they make, but give them choices of how to proceed so that they can regain some of that self-control. So I need some blood work as well as a urine sample from you. Which would you like to give first? So those are just some uh, tips and tricks that I have uh, to be a better communicator for you. And what I hope in the end is that you learned a lot and that the next time you might hear from the Office of Patient Experience, rather than hearing complaints, you're going to hear compliments such as these, which are real compliments that our team got from patients. You listened and communicated beyond my expectations. You greeted me and took my full story. You were patient and caring. You directed questions in a way we could understand and answer. You were professional, compassionate, and kind. You fully addressed any questions and concerns. You had incredible bedside manner. I felt heard. You explained what to expect so that I could feel less anxious. You made us feel like we were the only patients at Mayo. The needs of the patient come first came alive. As a final thought, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So thank you so much for listening to my presentation. And I also wanna thank my son, Miles. He's seven, but he helped me edit this um, presentation. So, because otherwise it would have been twice as long and half as fun. So thank you very much. By the way, Annie, one of those compliments was one of yours. Um, I don't remember which one, but uh, one of those was one of yours. <laughs> you have a question. Well, thank, thank you, Dr. Sanga. It was a wonderful presentation. Is there any questions from the room? I see Annie has her hand up. Uh, so thank you so much. First of all, this did not disappoint. And um, I have so much to learn. <laughs> frankly, because I think of myself as setting, establishing what control in the room. And I'm often quoted as saying, calm down, you need to calm down. So I need to get to yes, <laughs> better. I'm confident of that. Um, so my question has to do with supervising. And I think asking the open-ended question um is easier when you're seeing the patient on your own. And I often struggle knowing that that's the preferred approach, but also not wanting to appear as though the team isn't teaming well by walking into the room after the resident walked into the room and the student in some cases walked into the room and saying, so what brings you in today? Like, so I, do you have any tips on how you do that? Because I will say I, I really do admire the way you communicate and I'd like to hear how you navigate that space. No, it's true. Sometimes in some, in some settings, it's probably not appropriate to say what brought you in today because you already know it's a sprained ankle. The x-rays are negative. It, they probably are tired of answering the question. So if that is the case, then I will flip it and already start the summary. And um, so it's different from what we talked about, but I'll say, I know I read, so I'll even like, I'll explain. I read the nursing triage note and I talked to the medical student. Uh, I looked at your chart and this is what I know. 
And then I kind of put that out there and ask them if those things are correct. But if I do want to take any additional history, I will say, I know you have answered these questions already, and I'm sorry, but I am just double checking because I want to make sure we get this right. So that's that's how I would approach that is, is again, the more the people know about your intentions, why you're doing what you're doing, um, they will feel fine answering those questions. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, I expect all the residents to have great communication skills in our next sim session. <laughs> Someone was asking a question, I think. You said that's all your quotes, I'm gonna try and memorize them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the back of that. Yeah. <laughs> and does this work with men? <laughs> it works with everybody. Uh, all of these things, actually, most of these things were written. There was that book, How to Talk to Kids So Kids Will Listen. So good. Yeah. you The way you talk to children is the way you talk to adults because it's all about making people feel accepted. That's like the yeah. bottom, bottom line. It's amazing how if you do that, you will diffuse so many situations. Carmen, my friend. You've taught me so much over the years, and this is another example of that. That was incredibly special and very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone else, for listening to the show. Alex and I are really grateful for you for giving us your time and attention. It's a gift in our eyes, and we hope to repay it properly every time. If you felt that this was valuable, please take a moment to like and follow our show. It would mean the world to us. Also, please come back on the 1st of August for the next chapter of the podcast. Until then, stay well and be a positive influence. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 